Chinese medicine looks at everything as a pattern. Chinese medicine, in its essence, is the pattern language of human health. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Evolving Earth Podcast, where we speak to creators, entrepreneurs, and visionaries who are creating the world we want to live in. I'm your host, Will Sachs. Welcome back. Let's begin. Hey, friends. Welcome back to the podcast. This week, I talked to Marco Chengshu Lam. Marco is the founder and director of an incredible clinic here in Boulder, the Mandala Integrative Medicine Clinic. At the clinic, Marco's got a staff that works with elite athletes, entrepreneurs, and business leaders to help them find new levels of flow and performance and peace. And he does this through functional medicine and the oldest medical system in the world on planet Earth, Chinese medicine. So in this interview, we go deep into the Chinese medical system and how we can use that knowledge that's been developed over the last 5,000 years to help us understand the coronavirus pandemic and more generally how to live a good life, a life that's aligned with what's most important to us. And that's a fascinating part of this conversation. We also talk about permaculture. Marco's a senior teacher of permaculture, and he's taught on the topic for over 25 years. He founded the undergraduate permaculture curriculum at Naropa University here in Boulder. And he's also the founder of two herbal companies, Performance Tea and Freya Health, which is a company that makes teas for fertility and for women's reproductive health. So we talk about those two companies as well. Uh, we go deep into permaculture. Marco is currently running a regenerative farm in Colorado Springs, where he's growing some of the herbs that are used in his clinic. So his life is an amazing example of integrating various interests into a unique and powerful whole that he's now you know, using to give from. So I love this interview. I hope you enjoy it as well. I love the stuff on permaculture that we go into, how that jibes with ancient Chinese medicine concepts. And I just felt that after this interview, I was a much smarter human being. And Katie and I actually started foraging for mushrooms on our land here in Boulder and found some edible mushrooms that we've now been cooking up every few days for dinner. Uh, we went and got chickens so I hope this episode inspires you as much as it inspired me. And without further ado, here is Marco Chengshu Lam. Hey friends, I just wanted to take a minute to tell you about a project that I'm working on. If you've been following along, been a listener for a while, or maybe you uh, came in contact with me through my other business activities with Kendara or with Get Funded, you'll know that one of the ways that I'm interested in shifting culture is through the power of business and entrepreneurship and creativity. I think entrepreneurship is an incredible force when harnessed properly and with the right why to create new ways of being in the world, new ways of thinking, new structures, new institutions, new products. So, you know, that belief was why I founded Kindara, the women's health company that I founded in 2009 with Katie. And that's why I'm now really enjoying working with entrepreneurs that are creating positive culture, whether that's in the field of climate or health or food or human potential or women, 
there's so many ways that business can make a difference. And the way that I love plugging in is helping entrepreneurs raise the capital they need to make these kind of changes, to create organizations that create lasting change. So if that's you or you know anybody who's involved in that effort, uh, head over to foundersgetfunded.com. That's where I have all kinds of resources for companies that are raising money to make a difference. And I want to meet you. If you're creating something, you need money, you want to make a difference, I want to meet you. So please head over to foundersgetfunded.com and reach out and I look forward to a conversation. All right, Marco, welcome to Evolving Earth. Happy to be here. It's an interesting time. And uh, it sounds like it's an interesting time for you. We were talking before that you've just started a new chapter of your life in farming and permaculture, in addition to your your medical doctoring. And one question that I was curious about before, as I was preparing for the show was, you know, we're in this pandemic, we're like eight weeks into the pandemic here in North America. What does permaculture and Chinese medicine have to teach us about what's happening right now? That's a big question. Where I would start is the orientation is what is the context we're holding it in? Are we holding it in as, you know, a giant disruption? Are we holding it in from a place of fear? Are we holding it as a place of this is a great pause and a chance to look at like the deeper designs that drive society, drive our own individual lives and drive the economy and drive our ecologies? Can we look at this great pause as a chance to relook at some of what's designing our life and maybe create a better design? That's the context I find most helpful for myself. And when I answer that from the perspective of Chinese medicine, Chinese medicine looks at everything as a pattern. Chinese medicine in its essence is the pattern language of human health as, you know, described and annotated over somewhere around 4,000 years of continual evolution of a medical system. So when we look at the patterns of this pandemic in Chinese medicine, it's known as a damp plague or a damp toxin. And dampness is caused by eating too rich a diet, too much simple carbohydrates, too much simple sugars. A lot of times you can have exogenous damp from the environment that's impacting the microbiome from being in polluted environments, being in environments that are heavy in one sort of environmental toxin or another. So these damp pathogens have been seen in Chinese medicine for centuries or millennia. And when we look at this particular illness through that lens of the damp pathogen, it gives us an understanding of which populations it's going to hit the hardest. And we're already seeing that played out when we see the folks with comorbidity of eating poor diets, being in urban places with polluted air, being obese, having poor cardiovascular health, having poor blood sugar regulation. Those are the people that's going to hit the hardest. And it also gives us some dietary orientation of what things we can do to sort of minimize the impact of the virus in our system. And it also gives us some orientation of long-term health use and herbal treatment of the illness. And, you know, Chinese doctors are figuring this out just as everyone else is. It's new and anyone who tells you we know exactly what to do is probably taking too strong a stance. But I think what we can do is look at the patterns that are happening and 
look at the patterns that happened before and extrapolate. And that's what human minds are uniquely able to do is to, to see the patterns. From a permaculture perspective, we can first, permaculture is a design principle that also looks at what are the patterns that create human habitation and can we create human habitation that is permanent, meaning that it's regenerative ecologically, that we can play the long game and that it creates a culture around it that passes that culture along. So in a way, we're trying to create as permanent food systems and housing systems and economic systems and forage systems that mimic the ecological structures so we can create long-term human habitation without destroying our ecology. And I think it's a priority for humans to learn at this point. And permaculture is primarily driven by an ethical system. So as opposed to, say, engineering or architecture, which are also, you know, principles that use design and focus a lot on what are the patterns that create good design in those places. The difference is permaculture is an ethically driven system. So there's three core ethics. So permaculture, three ethics. The first ethic is care of the earth. And the care of the earth, if we don't have a good ecology to live in, it really sort of is a drag to be a human being. And so our primary responsibility in a way is to create good ecologies for us to live in. The second ethic is care of humans. And if we don't care for the humans in our environment, we also create ecologies that are damaging because the humans who are not cared for will damage our ecology. There'll be more strife. There'll be more social unrest. There'll be more illness, more disease when human beings aren't taken care of. So we can think of both of these primary ethics as sort of self-serving in a way. Like if I take care of my community and take care of my ecology, it actually creates a better experience, a better culture for me to live in. And the third ethic is probably the more controversial one, but is very core to permaculture and is called the fair share ethic. And the fair share ethic can be interpreted a lot of different ways. But the idea is that if we build regenerative ecologies, eventually we build ecologies financially, ecologically, food-wise, calorie-wise, that produce more than we need. And if we can reinvest the surplus beyond what we need to live a really good life back into other ecologies, we strengthen the system as a whole. Mm. And so, like, the idea isn't just that I'm on my farm and I have my solar panels set up and my greenhouse is set up and I'm eating figs from my hammock in my tropical greenhouse and you know, swimming in my pond, eating peaches, apples, and cherries, and getting eggs from my chickens and greens from my hoop houses, you know, that's part of it. You know, that's living a good life, you know, skiing out my backyard and hunting meat from my own biome. Like this is all a good life that I enjoy, but if I do it well, I should generate enough surplus that I can reinvest it in systems that are deeply in need. And what does that reinvestment look like for you, like in your vision of how this should work? Well, you know, those ethics are so deeply wound into my life. It looks like my every day. Right now I'm teaching, a, you know, I taught two 20-year-old women this week how to run a BCS tractor, how to graft fruit trees, how to start seeds in a seed house, how to harvest herbs from the landscape that they can use to heal some of the medical challenges they're facing. 
So for me, one of my biggest surpluses, because I've spent so much time in educating myself with master mentors, that is passing that information on. Yeah. But on like a more uh, physical level, on a more gross level, I worked with an organic dairy farmer to get well-composted organic dairy manure delivered up to Steamboat just because we don't have a lot of huge amount of livestock concentrated. Most of the livestock up here is ranged. And a lot of the soils up here are uh, schist or heavy clay. And so they're not naturally as fertile as we would want. So I am doing cover crops too, to grow the fertility just from what's here, but we can boost the fertility by bringing in outside nutrients. And one of the beautiful things about it is we brought up 40 yards and most 30 yards of that went out into the community to home growers, to people on ranches who are sort of growing for their families. And I put a post up on Facebook saying, Hey, I'm new to the community. What do people in this community need? And they're like, we need help getting fertility in our gardens. I'm like, if I brought in some really well composted organic dairy manure, would people be interested and the Facebook posts like blew up. Like I had like 200 posts in an hour. Hmm. So sometimes you find a way to deliver surplus into the community by just doing what you're already doing. And in a way, we can even look at podcasts doing that. It's a way that more people, we can share information, informational surpluses and are sometimes the easiest information, easiest surplus to pass on. Yeah. But also right now in my clinic, in my integrative medicine clinic on the front range in Boulder, I have 28 practitioners and a lot of the body workers are particularly hard hit because their whole income was coming in from touching people's bodies, which they can't do right now. And a lot of them are younger in their 20s and 30s. So they don't have the kind of economic backing someone who's run successful businesses for years, like some of our psychotherapists or acupuncturists have. So part of sharing the surplus is paying their rent and covering their expenses, supporting them while they can't practice. So when we can practice again, we maintain our staff. And I, I see a lot of good businesses doing that right now is like, if you had a business that generated surplus for years and was profitable, and you've built up a huge resource in a really talented staff, you know, it's worth investing in your people to keep them as part of your team. Yeah, I just saw a parallel between permaculture and, and capitalism, like natural, you could maybe call permaculture like natural capitalism. And there's this because done right, it produces a surplus. And then it seems to me that we've lost with our version of capitalism is that the surplus generated by the system needs to be reinvested in a way that supports the health of the system as a whole. And it seems like our version of capitalism right now has lost that. And the surplus is, is being stockpiled by a, a small group of, of individuals and not being used to benefit the whole system. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe like say in Elon Musk's case, he's thinking that like the place to reinvest the surplus is planetary exploration, right? which is a reasonable and really cool perspective. But in my ethics, I'd prefer taking care of the planet we're on first before we go visit other ones. And in a way, they actually are complementary goals by understanding how to take care of it, ecology and build ecologies. Then if you go to a place that has a very 
you know, damaged ecology or has no terrestrial human supporting ecology like Mars, you are, by learning how to build ecologies, you gain really useful skills. Yeah. But it's not only about building ecology. It's also about building culture. We have to build a culture that takes care of the ecology. And to loop back to natural capitalism, I think natural capitalism is sort of in a way like maybe a shallow end of permaculture. Because uh, in permaculture, it looks at a lot of different resources, flows. There is natural capital, you know, what's in the woods, what's in the soil. But there's also intellectual capital, which I think capitalism pays for really well these days. There's financial capital, but there's also social capital. I think people in like the alternative cultures a lot of times are very rich in social capital, like the strength of their communities and the people they know rather than having a, say, vacation house in Hawaii, sometimes you feel a lot richer having a really good friend in Hawaii who has a really nice house on the beach. And you go visit him and work on his farm, and he takes really good care of you while you're there. So there's social capital, but there's also spiritual capital. You know, like when we talk about the medicine traditions, to a certain extent, we're borrowing on the spiritual capital of people who have kept plant medicine traditions alive for millennia. There's a deep spiritual capital. There's cultural capital, you know. And so in permaculture, we, we look at all these different forms of capital flows and sometimes understanding where is the best place, understanding that these capital flows are fungible. Like you can take financial capital and put it into social capital, or you can take social capital and put it in financial capital. The question is, what is the best, what serves the larger ecology of humans and the ecologies they sit in? Where should we put that capital? And what's your answer to that question? I think to create a permanent culture right now, we have to put a lot of our economic capital back into ecological capital, back into natural capital. We have to build soils again. We have to fix oceans. We have to replant forests. The very ecology that the capitalist structure sort of borrows from, the loans are coming due Mm -hmm. and the interest is getting higher and higher. And so sometimes if you have too much debt in one of the systems of capital, whether it be ecological, social, spiritual, when the debt collector comes, it's, it's not always pretty. So my orientation right now is to really build ecological capital, build social capital and build cultural capital. I don't ignore financial capital. There's some people who have like a, a antibody against capitalism and I don't. I actually think the capitalist society is a really efficient way of moving resources around. It's just a question of what is the ethic behind how we're moving the resources around. Right. Like what's the why? What's the why? And what's the culture? You know, if the culture is everyone get the biggest house possible, drive a Tesla and have the biggest 401k possible, like that's a culture that's going to pull away from a lot of spiritual, ecological, natural, and, you know, long-term capitals in the system. And we, we see that happening and it will continue to happen. But, you know, being a permaculture teacher, I, I feel like I teach the most inspired of the humans on the planet, people who care about the natural and ecological systems and actually don't want to just talk about the problems, but actually want to plant you know, and permaculture isn't planting gardens, having chickens, growing bees, putting in orchards. But once you understand capital flows from a permaculturist perspective of what actually creates a good life, people start orienting that way pretty quickly. 
and there's a real parallel. We talked earlier about the medicine path. The longer people are on the medicine path, the more they want to repair the damage between them and the natural world. And so when people take, you know, uh, peyote or yahe, over time, they start wanting to reconnect to the natural world in a way that's real as opposed to a way that's just ritualistic. That's definitely been my experience, feeling reconnected to the natural world as I've gone down the medicine path. Yeah, and it's only one step, you know, between becoming a visitor, becoming a sort of tourist in your own ecology, and being in relationship. So one of the things I was talking with one of the young women who's working as a farmhand on my ranch was that when I walk into the woods here, I'm surrounded by medicine. And when I'm surrounded by medicine, like suddenly the relationship between me and the land changes. Like, oh, I know this plant's good for sore throat. I know this plant's good for when I don't sleep. I know this plant's good for when I'm feeling anxious. When I have that relationship, when I walk out into that ecology and I start seeing the relationships, both how the plants are interacting with each other and how I'm interacting with those plants, suddenly I come home. And when I'm home, like my nervous system relaxes in a different way. Hmm. And when people walk and they're just like, oh, that's a pretty bush. That's a pretty tree. Oh, it's so gorgeous here. In a way, we're still tourists. And if you look at any indigenous culture that has a plant medicine tradition, you know, and some of those plant medicine traditions have been exported to, say, the United States, a lot of times a lot gets lost in translation because so much of it comes from being in a place surrounded by medicine. Their worldview comes from a place of, I am part of the ecology, the ecology is part of me. Like the plants, animals, and herbs, and medicines and even poisons in this place I'm in relationship to. And so sometimes when we take one powerful plant teacher out like peyote or ayahuasca outside of that context, you know, it can send us in all sorts of wacky directions because we're outside of a larger ecological understanding and context. That's not to say that there can't be good guidance and healing there, but it's also really easy to, I think, get lost. Get lost. Yeah. We talked before the show a little bit about, I was saying my intention for this show is to help answer the question, how do we create a world that works for everybody? And you said, well, Chinese medicine and permaculture has something to say about that. And I'd love to, to ask you that question now on, you know, while we're recording to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. These are two of my favorite subjects. So I'm happy to speak on both. Chinese medicine says, you know, as above, so below, you know. So ultimately, Chinese medicine at the highest level is practiced on fulfilling what is called Ming. And Ming can be translated a lot of different ways, but some people translate it as destiny. But the actual translation is closer to a contract. And the idea that we have a contract between heaven and earth, so heaven being the sort of creative, expansive, higher level awareness that exists in all human beings, and earth being the ecology we live in, like, how do we use this highly expansive awareness in our ecology? And so each one of us has a different set of gifts, a different set of talents, a different set of internal ecologies, and a different set of external ecologies. So what does it look like? And, you know, that's one of the great gifts of studying with indigenous people is like, 
the indigenous traditions of someone who lives in the desert and someone who lives in the jungle have some overlap, but they're incredibly place specific. And so to a certain extent, what Chinese medicine says is we're a unique ecology and how do we steward this unique ecology we are to fulfill the contract that we have? And that when we fulfill that contract, we're in radiant, powerful health. Hmm. And radiant, powerful health is comprised of being in relationship to vast, spacious emptiness that's in all of us. You can think of that as zero. And from that comes one, the Tao. The Tao is the sort of flow that comes through all life. Yeah. And then you can think of it comes from the, from one comes two, the primal polarity of yin and yang, the masculine and feminine, the light and dark that exists in all of us. And then you can think from two comes three, which is the three treasures, which are traditionally known as Jing, Qi, and Shen. I like to say Jing is like our sexual essence. It's our motive physical power in our systems. It really relates to our endocrine system in a way. And that Jing, I say, is a lot of times the waggle in your hips. You know, when, hmm. when you see like a young person who's full of life and full of healthy sexuality, like there's a swagger, you know, yeah. just from their fertility expressing through their physical being. And that, you know, it's very attractive and beautiful. And from there comes from that Jing, you can think of that as the firewood and turns into Qi. And Qi is the motive force. That's what we do with that raw vitality. Do we do it to create great works of art? Do we do it to create beautiful landscapes? Do we do it to create beautiful structures? What do we do with that actual motive life force? And then from that motive life force, if it's channeled correctly, we develop wisdom, we develop light. And Shen is in a way like if you look at an elder who lived their life in a really good way, that their path was really fulfilled their jing might be done. They might not have much sexuality left. Their chi might be done. They might not be doing that much in the world anymore with that energy, but their shen is bright. Their eyes glow. And so in Chinese medicine, ultimately, if we practice it well, we cultivate all three of those treasures. Hmm, I love that. I'm just present to how young we are as a culture in, in, in America, maybe as Western culture as a whole, as we don't I mean, we've, Western culture has developed under the supervision or the direction of, of organized religion, mostly, and capitalism more recently. And so there's no concept of this contract other than with organized religion, maybe with your contract with God and you're going to go to heaven. And more recently, I've been getting into the work of Bill Plotkin and, and other cultural historians who talk about the concept of a soul and finding our soul's purpose or living our soul's purpose as a way to live in harmony with the natural world. That like a deer is a deer. It doesn't have a choice. But for us as humans, we get to choose whether to, it sounds like honor that contract or not. Yeah. And if we honor that contract, we're bestowed with the gifts of good health in a way. And if we don't honor that contract, it creates all sort of dysfunction in our beings, either, you know, body, mind or spirit, the dysfunction is going to land somewhere. Can you talk about that contract and how it's played out in your life as an example? You know, in a way, I'm still fulfilling my contract, you know, to say what the entire contract is while you're still alive, I think is, is a lot of hubris. And it would be a really long story if we went into my whole contract. But uh, funny enough, I was speaking at our early 
stage of my life yesterday with one of the neighbors when we were cleaning out an irrigation ditch and looking at some issues. And he had spent time in Chile with the Mapuche. And uh, his dog had a Mapindungan name. And I was like, that name sounds familiar. And so he had spent time with the Mapuche as well. And the Mapuche, a lot of times in like indigenous traditions or spiritual traditions, sometimes you'll be named. And that that name will have sort of a, con- like an elder will sort of be able to see your contract mm-hmm. better than you can. And the Mapuche elders named me Namel. And Namel means uh, speaker. But in particularly, it's like, uh, it's, you know, like meaning a voice of the tribe that you sort of are like a diplomat or a representative to go speak to other tribes, go to make treaties. And in a way, like, I think a lot of it's been sort of teaching and creating culture and creating community. Not necessarily as the chief, mind you, but as like the speaker, someone who's holding like the values and constructs of the tribe for like what is long-term health for my tribe. Great. I love that. I'm happy I've got you speaking here helping you fulfill your contract. And so for each of us, if we take this concept of the contract, how do does each of us discern what that is in Chinese medicine or in your view? I think in all cultures, there's a process of initiation. There's a process of speaking with your elders and a process of going to an ordeal or challenge. And so a lot of times it's you know, among the young people I know who are really like fired up with their contract, a lot of times they had trauma early on in their life and something bad happened to them. And then they got clear on what's worth living for. And so sometimes if people grew up really sheltered, they didn't have a chance to find that contract, but that contract always exists. And, you know, if you're a skilled elder, you should be able to find someone's contract pretty quick. It's sometimes really obvious, you know, and you know, the iller and sicker a person is of mind, body, and spirit, sometimes the harder it is to find their contract. To dig, what, to dig through and To find. dig through. But I believe that everyone has a strong contract in there. Usually the contract is pretty like succinct and obvious to a certain extent. Like if you were a listener and you're like, wait a second, I don't have indigenous elders and like my elders are in a nursing home somewhere and are not that wise and watch Fox News. What do I do? Right. Great question. Yeah. And in that case, I would say like, who are five elders you do respect in your life? And can you invite them over for dinner? Can you cook them the best possible meal you came in and say, hey, I need support. I'm coming toward you in a humble way and want to say like, I don't know what I'm meant to be doing. And my guess is they would have some ideas. And my guess is their ideas, if there were a Venn diagram, the center of that Venn diagram would be pretty consistent. Hmm. I love that advice. Yeah. Is joy a reliable marker? I think for some people, you know, in Chinese medicine, joy comes from the heart. And like, ultimately, the heart is the sovereign. And when you're in your sovereignty, you're in your heart. And so that means the emperor is in their throne, and joy comes naturally. I think you can be a little bit of a joy junkie. And be sort of uh, state chasing. I've seen that a lot in Boulder where people are sort of like going from Burning Man to festivals and constantly looking for these peak joy states using substances. And a lot of times it's sort of like if we were to use the emperor metaphor again, 
which a lot of the Chinese use as very feudal metaphors because the culture was feudal for so long. It'd be like one of these like sort of wimpy, not in their sovereignty lead emperors who's spending all his time with his concubines and, you know, everyone, all the people around him, all the leadership is flattering him all the time and not giving him good advice. And he's off with the head, you know, with anyone he doesn't like or gives him negative feedback, sort of like a Game of Thrones Joffrey Baratheon. Mm-hmm. You know, someone can be in their sovereignty in a really negative, you know, not aligned with heaven and earth, not fulfilling a healthy contract. So it's quite possible that you could have a lot of joy and not fulfill a contract. But I don't know that it's sustainable. I don't see that it builds long-term joy, but I've definitely seen people who are incredibly joyous people who are burning through their inheritance on a festival circuit, you know, on Coke and MDMA every night. And they're pretty joyous, happy people. There's, there's no argument about that, but are they fulfilling their contract? No. And you think that contract comes back at some point that there's, I would say, you know, I believe in free will. So I don't believe you have to fulfill your contract. And I've seen plenty of old people in my clinic who are not wise elders who never fulfilled their contract in lives and are unhappy and unhealthy. But I've also seen plenty of people in their, you know, elders in my clinic who are very much fulfilling their contracts and vibrant in their 70s and 80s and clear about what they're here to do. And those people I want to pay attention to. It's amazing the perspective you get seeing that age and maturity aren't necessarily the same thing. And like, what do you notice between those two groups of elders? Well, I would say that, A, there's a gradation. And, you know, there's, it's not one side of the line or the other. But I would say those elders who sort of fulfilled their contract in a way are generally have a sense of spaciousness, a sense of peace, a sense of deeper awareness, are more likely to track really well what's going on in a room really track what's going on with me and really track what's going on with their environment. And I look for a brightness in the eyes. Like sometimes, you know, sometimes you're in an airport or a train station and you just see someone with bright eyes Mm -hmm. across the station and they can be any age. They can be a 16 year old or an 80 year old. And like the Shen is already like burning bright. Yeah. You know, a lot of times we might experience this, like we talked about, like, plant medicines, like if you've been in a plant medicine ceremony, the morning after, no matter how challenging the ceremony was, you'll see this glow in everyone's eyes. Because in a way, we've used plant medicine to transform Jing into Qi and Qi into Shen. We've accelerated that process in a way, for better or for worse. You know, I think sometimes young people who, you know, haven't stewarded their Jing or Qi well and tried to turn it all into Shen right away, can burn out their kidney adrenal systems that you can see sort of hypothalamic pituitary adrenal dysfunction stuff. I wouldn't expect to see into people late in life. I see in people in their twenties and thirties all the time in Boulder, just because they've pushed their Jing and Qi systems to produce a lot of Shen. And to a certain extent, some of these people are already have a level of wisdom that's unusual for their age. I taught permaculture at Naropa and started the permaculture program there And that was true of a lot of these young people. Like they already had a lot of insight, but they didn't have enough discipline or structure underneath that insight to actually create healthy systems. Systems in the world, you mean? Systems in the world, systems in their body, 
the patterns that create longer term health. Yeah, right. So like, for example, if you were a 20 year practitioner of internal martial arts, you're going to cultivate some Shen, you're going to cultivate some stillness and brightness inside. But you also have a body to match it. Whereas if you take, say, mushrooms every day for a year, you know, you might have some deep insight, but your your bodily systems, your mm-hmm. cheek is not going to be able to maintain that level of insight without sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul. Right. This has been a theme in this series on psychedelic healing is the integration element of taking those insights and turning them into behaviors that then become habits that then start to be part of ourself, like integrating the insight into our bodies and into our world. Yeah. That seems like clearly the hardest part, way harder than taking mushrooms or taking MDMA at a festival. Sure. Yeah. That integration is where the discipline and the work comes in. And our culture, a lot of times is one of instant gratification, not one that super values discipline and work. But usually the things that really cultivate chi over time are all things are discipline and work. They're like kind of boring in a way. Yeah. Like in Chinese culture, literally it's uh, the, I don't know about boring, but the term is Kung Fu. And you can do Kung Fu tea, you could do Kung Fu martial arts, but Kung Fu literally translates as hard work. You know, in a way, like if you do 10,000 hours of podcasting through your hard work, you're going to develop a skill set and a flow with it that will be unique, you know, that you would have earned that you could be proud of. Yeah, this has been an insight actually the last few weeks for me is like seeing life as a series of flywheels that are heavy and hard to move. And that every day, like every day, if I invest in 10 minutes of meditation, every day, if I invest in saying something nice to my wife, every day, if I invest in, you know, doing the work with my business, it's like, they're flywheels that they move slowly, they get going faster, going faster. And it really is those daily little habits that allow like a flowering, like working in our garden is another example, making some boxes and buying the soil, putting the soil in like all the little pushes on the flywheel. Yep. And that changes your relationship with your home and your land and with your wife when you cultivate it. And even with your meal, when you eat that meal from the lettuce and radishes you grew this spring, like it tastes sweeter. Yeah. And it's more nutritious, you know, it was grown in rich soil and, you know, it wasn't grown chopped up from like Mexico somewhere trucked up and, you know, touching lots of people's hands with all sorts of interesting microbes on them and grown on the same piece of soil every year. That's a little nutrient deficient. So the food you grow in your own yard, right near your back porch, is some of the healthiest food you're going to eat. The most full, of, like when we talked about uh, Jing, Qi, and Shen, it's going to be the most full of Qi. Mm. And in a way, in Chinese medicine, we just want to optimize our, our Qi in our life. Can you define how you understand permaculture? Like what would be your definition of permaculture? My definition of permaculture is creating true human freedom and true creating the ground for human awareness to really deeply grow creating the optimal ecological habitats for human beings to really flower. That's my definition. Yeah. So how do you see plant medicine factoring into that aim? Well, first of all, I want to expand the definition of plant medicine. Plant medicine is the relationship between human beings and plants. You know, 
the plant medicine I'm recommending the most to people right now at this time in the 1st of May, you know, traditional Beltane time for the Northern Europeans, which is like the fertility time, is we're coming out of the sort of long winter into the warmth of spring. And so usually our diets are heavier, less fresh vegetables in the winter, and our livers are a little more stagnant, and there's been a lot of stress because of, you know, recent events. So to me, the plant medicine for today, for this moment in time, for most people in northern latitudes is the dandelion. You can dig up the dandelion, get four or five roots from any place that they didn't spray or have dogs peeing all the time, which there are plenty. They're not hard to find. And boil four or five of those roots in a quart of water, add half a lemon and two tablespoons of honey and put in your fridge and drink two cups of that a day. And that's going to clean out your liver. And then when you start going out into the yard and start seeing dandelions, your relationship to that particular plant in traditional cultures, this would be called a dieta that like I'm building a relationship, a diet by eating this plant. I'm building a relationship with this plant. And the dandelion is the plant of tenacity. It is the medicine of tenacity and overcoming the pollutants of the modern world. It is also the plant of Europeans coming to other places. It is a traveler plant and it sends deep roots and helps you connect with place. So all that is in the humble dandelion that you know people are spraying and putting chemicals on. And it's one of the most important plants for bees early in the spring. You can take the dandelion flowers off and coat them with a little scrambled up eggs and then put them in flour and fry them up and make fritters out of them and they're delicious. Mm. So there's all this deep medicine in this plant. Now, if we're talking plant medicine in terms of the sort of grandfather, grandmother medicines, those sort of like big dog medicines like yahe or ayahuasca or yohimbe, a lot of times these medicines were used in very sacred ceremonies to sort of correct errors in the tribe, you know, to help align the tribe to the deeper vision of what the tribe's contract was with with their home and with their tribe itself. So when we talk the bigger medicines, I think we are seeing them spread so quickly is because a lot of times they were kept secret. You know, this was a tribe special medicine that gave it particular powers in a particular place, and it wouldn't be shared with outsiders. But now I think most tribal people are like, you know, we're going to hell in a handbasket, even if our own tribe's in good health, like, the brothers up north are causing a lot of problems for us. Yeah. Let's, they need some support and they need some wisdom. They need some alignment. They need to be fulfilling their contracts. So I, I think there's a lot of teachers who've let the sort of cat out of the bag with the medicine. And now that the cat's out of the bag, it's, it's really up for us to sort of integrate those plant medicines in a way that we can sing the praise of the places we are in and prove worthy of the indigenous traditions and the knowledge and wisdom that got shared with us. Yeah. And what do you think that responsible use looks like for people who grew up here in North America? The most responsible use I see is where you're still in relationship with the indigenous traditions where it came from and that you're an active support and giving back to those traditions, praising those traditions, and also being in touch with the indigenous people from where it came and giving something back. You know, within most indigenous medicine, the idea of the gift is really powerful, but there's always the concept of reciprocity. 
And that concept of reciprocity is really important. So if, if you're not in contact with the indigenous traditions of the medicine you're using, it's a really good idea to find people who are and get guidance. And then you, you learn the deeper threads of those medicines. Hearing that, it's like the sense of an ongoing process. You know, when I went down to Peru to do ayahuasca, it was, I had the view of I'm going to go down there, get healed, and then come back, and then everything will be great. And yep. very much of the instant gratification orientation that, that I guess that I had, and, and I, I assume a lot of other people have. And then having done that and had, having had that experience and being exposed to the indigenous Pibo tradition, I did come back feeling that, okay, that was like one step on a long journey and I need to stay connected with the medicine and with, with the earth and with the, the indigenous tradition down there. And that this is going to be something that I'll probably be exploring for the rest of my life in some way or, or another. Yeah. And I think those powerful plant medicines have a place when a person is really disconnected or really traumatized by their connection to tribe or connection to place. I think those are, can be very powerful medicines for healing and can sort of reset things in a really big way. Though a lot of times I orient people, if they're interested in plant medicine, is you know start with the medicines where you are. Just start learning the medicines close by. I love walking up into the foothills of Boulder with people into these ponderosa forests and having them put their head forehead against a big ponderosa and just smelling and you get this waft of butterscotch that comes off the ponderosa that smells rich and it's the keystone species of that ecology that a fireborn ecology of the sort of front range but underneath the ponderosas if it's a healthy ecology you usually have currants and gooseberries and choke cherries and all of these are really like high in vitamin c strong anti-inflammatories which are really useful when you're in high altitude, bright sun environments. You always want to have a high dosage of antioxidants, especially in the spring and summer months because we take so much UV in. So there's medicine right there. And then underneath there on the ground cover, you have uh, uva ursi or kanikkanik, which is a really good herb for bladder and urinary tract health. And the amount of young women that I take out in the forest and say, how many of you had, you know, urinary tract infections in your life? They all raised their hands for the most part. And them suddenly saying, oh, the medicine is right here, right 10 feet out my doorstep. You know, it was here all along. Like, it changes something. WTF, right? Like, yeah. And then you also have Oregon grapefruit in there, which has berberine in it, which is a natural narrow spectrum antibiotic that goes after particularly bad bacteria in our gut. So for people who have bad skin issues, who have, you know, food allergies, suddenly you realize, oh, wait, there was this digestive tonic right in my backyard. And this is like the foundation of the ecology of our place. And suddenly when you realize that that ecology is right here and that these medicines are all around me, suddenly I come home. And so sometimes people are grasping for the sort of big fireworks plant medicines. And I think sometimes even something as simple as a flower essence, you know, for a three-year-old can be super powerful and have that child sleep well again, can be magic. And so the more the relationship with the natural world we're in, the more our contract is fulfilled to a certain extent universally. And then when we 
study with plant teachers who have a really deep relationship with the natural world and have used grandmother and grandfather medicines to infuse spiritual capital into their tribe and into their culture over generations, over generations of generations. Like we can start using that as a guide point of how we want to live our lives. Like what do I need to do in my community to sort of support the young people in my community? You know, especially if we're in our thirties and forties and we see all these sort of young, depressed, anxious people on their cell phones and their teens and twenties and preteens, like, can I mentor these people so they don't suffer like I suffered because I suffered and I, I know some of what I suffered and I, I have some wisdom of what it's like to go through middle school and high school and college and to drink too much and to sleep too little and to eat poorly. I have the wisdom of what that suffering is like and I could prevent some suffering. Beautiful. And if you're in a healthy marriage, suddenly you're like, oh, you know, your problems with your boyfriend, I, I have some tools for you. Like I went through that myself. So in a way, like it's up to all of us to become these wisdom carriers, you know, Sometimes we can put sort of indigenous elders on a pedestal and sometimes they're really worthy to put there and sometimes their development is uneven. You know, you can have someone who has a really high line of ecological spiritual intelligence but have a really low line of economic, sexual or ethical intelligence. And so for me, particularly when we travel to say the countries that are still growing their economies and the systems been unstable, say, you know, particularly some of the upper Amazon countries, you know, it can be very dangerous to take plant medicines down there because there may be agendas beyond just healing there for the people doing the ceremonies. And that I get scared sometimes for the sort of younger people who are sort of like see a Facebook ayahuasca post, come to Peru and take ayahuasca. Like that scares the shit out of me. Right. Be careful. Yeah. Be careful. Yeah. What I just got from what you just said is that our Western society is high in financial capital, but potentially low in spiritual capital. I mean, it's seemingly low in spiritual capital, actually, from my perspective, very low in spiritual capital. And some of these other places that I visited seem much higher in spiritual capital and lower in financial capital. So, well, sometimes that's it's necessary. Like if you're, you know, say on. North American, Native American reservation where the living conditions are as poor as some third world countries, the spiritual capital is what keeps your culture alive and going. That's what you have. Right. And to a certain extent in our, in our culture, in the sort of, say, the Boulder bubble culture, you know, like we're not taking care of our elders. A lot of times we're not even taking care of our kids. Sometimes we're not even cleaning our house or taking care of our walking our dogs. You know, we can use financial capital to outsource all our social capital needs. Like I don't have an elder to listen to me. I can pay for a therapist. I don't have a medicine man to doctor me. I'll go see the acupuncturist. So in a way we've cap turned all the sort of social capital into financial capital. Don't have a friend to drive me to the airport. I'll call Uber. Uber. <laughs> yeah. So in a way we can look at that and say like, if I am wealthy in financial capital, what capital is, would fulfill my contract the most in my life. Right. What do, do I need to transmute my financial capital into social capital or spiritual capital? Yeah. Or cultural capital. Cultural capital. How do you, know, you what's cultural capital? Cultural capital could be 
my, my father was a carpenter. My grandfather was a blacksmith. My parents were both gardeners. I know how to make wonton. I know how to make mm. a Mongolian fire pot. Like these recipes that right. we pass down through our generations, you know, that are health giving and that we love and that nurture our family, that's cultural capital. That song that your grandmother taught you, that's cultural capital. You know, yeah. the Christmas celebration where you light candles on the tree rather than put on Christmas lights from my German grandmother through my mother and that we sing sort of German Christmas carols, that's cultural capital. And that, that cultural capital can be very, very rich, you know, and all of us have it somewhere. And a lot of people just threw it under the bus. You know, right, we it, like ignored it or. Yeah. And like, or... you know, all of our grandmothers baked bread or made rice or made mochi or made all sorts of things. And a lot of that cultural capital is being lost, not only in sort of Western traditions, but in indigenous traditions too. When the young people leave to go to the city and don't learn how to thatch a house with palm fronds or don't learn to harvest the poison arrow dark frogs, you know, or, you know, every time we, we lose these traditions, sometimes they're lost permanently. And a lot of this is in languages. You know, there's a huge amount of cultural capital in indigenous languages because indigenous languages embed the patterns of a worldview into the language, into the song, and the warp and weft of the very cultures in that language. Once you lose that language, like, there's a lot that gets lost in translation. And so most of us have lost our ancestral languages, you know, for better or for worse. And that's true for me. And in some ways, like my daughter is trilingual. And so like, I wanted to correct that for the next generation. I wanted to ask you about the psychedelic healing in a clinical setting. Yeah. You know, there's a whole initiative and worldview that says that these are medicines or these are pharmaceuticals like MDMA is going through the process to be used as a pharmaceutical in a way and tightly controlled. There's organizations that are synthesizing psilocybin or psilocin and using that in a clinical setting. Like what's your view on, on that way to bring psychedelics and psychedelic healing into culture? I think it's really powerful. I have colleagues in Boulder who do that work and I've, I've seen exceptional healing happen. Again, like we talked about the plant medicines, it's as much about taking the substances as about the counselor and integration on the other end. So I think in a way it's sort of creating our own medicine traditions within the mm -hmm. construct of the society we live in. I tend to think they're a little, in a way like, you can't transmit wisdom and the health of the contract beyond the wisdom and health of the contract you have yourself. I mean, I imagine that like if you had a young man who was going through depression in high school and you did some medicine with him and you had a heart connection with him and you felt like big brotherly love toward him, I imagine you could do some great healing for him. But I imagine if you were dealing with, say, end of life cancer patient, you know, the amount of who's 80 and who was really afraid. My question is, can you transmit that wisdom? Maybe, maybe you've had some near death experiences that, that have some wisdom embedded in there that you can pass on. So I, I think it's the issue is that when we slow down and look at what these medicines do as they open up the door, they decrystallize or break apart 
neuronal patterns of how we see the world and suddenly we see it through a different set of lens, through a different doorway, through a different door of perception. But what do we replace it with? And my hope is that we replace it with wisdom. But I think if it becomes too much of, say, a cash cow, you know, capitalism may try to like, you know, I'd hate to see sort of like modern acupuncture versus or like massage specialist version or massage envy version of like a a ketamine clinic. Like that'd be like totally scary. I think it's coming. I think it is coming and I think it's bad. But I think in the right hands, these are like chainsaws of the mind. If you have some really rotten wood out there, like the the chainsaw is a really useful tool, but like who's wielding the chainsaw? Right. And who's, I mean, who's teaching the people that are wielding the chainsaw? Yeah. I think fortunately in Boulder, the guy at the head of the charge is Will Vandermeer. And he is capable, has a huge heart, super compassionate. So I feel like in Boulder, actually, we're, we're pretty resourced. And there's a lot of people who've done like extensive work on themselves. There's a really good therapy community in Boulder. So I, I think in Boulder, at least within that bubble, I think there's potential for really strong medicine there. Mm. But I have questions about other places, you know, but you end up knowing the place and supporting the place that's your home and having people who are really like devoted to their own healing and fulfilling their own contract, I think are really pushing the psychedelic healing movement forward. And I think most of them have experienced significant healing within their own psychedelic journeys. And a lot of them are really skilled transversers of those doors of perception. So I have both hope and fear in that, in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I do as well. You know, actually I think the good thing about it and the bad thing about it is we also live in a litigious society. And I think that if enough people have bad experiences at a place, I imagine there'll be sanctions against that practitioner. Yeah. Like we'll weed out the people that are not delivering wisdom or or don't have the wisdom or compassion or people who, you know, to take MDMA with someone in like a healing context, like a burning man, there's probably a fair amount of boundary violations that happen through that substance, you know? Yeah. So I I think it it has potential for a lot of good and a lot of harm. I tend to be fairly, the funny word I use is sober. I tend to be sober about it, you know? I'm very positive about what the potential of these tools are. And I'm also really grounded in the reality of like a lot of humans who haven't done their own healing are attracted to healing practices. Yeah. And so, or are in the process of their own healing might be more fair to say. I had somebody reach out to me and say, uh, I, I have a friend who wants to sit people on mushrooms and she's wondering about what the right dosage is. And I said, well, why is she wondering about what the right dosage is? Like, has she done this herself? And this person said, no. And I said, well, no, you, you definitely, she shouldn't be sitting people if she hasn't obviously done it herself and not only done it herself, but done it herself in a context where she can learn about how it works and what happens and, yeah. and where there's actual wisdom. That would be helpful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've had incredible experiences where it was just me by myself with myself, but the last year has really been an exploration into where's the wisdom around this that I can anchor my own experiences onto and that I can actually have a context for what is happening. Yeah. 
You know, one of the experiences that come to me, particularly on psilocybin, is the sort of cycle of life really speaks strongly to me that I'm in relationship with my own death and how I'm aging and my, my, I'm on the road toward death. <laughs> but also like in being a father, like I've created life and in planting these forests and planting these gardens, I've created life and the, this cycle of life and death. And I think that there's this orientation of this sort of endless cycle of life and death that I'm, I'm privileged to be part of, but life is very short in a way. What do I do with this life? And I, I've had that same insight so many times that I, I feel less attracted to that medicine at this stage. Like I feel like, oh, that lesson, like that life is short and that I'm in the cycle of life and death and I want to create more life while I'm here is a beautiful insight that feels like it in, informs my work on the farm and my work in healing, the work in restoring women's fertility, the work in helping people out of pain and get their chi and their life force restored. And, you know, in a way like farming and permaculture are, and Chinese medicine have so much overlap because like the foundation of good health is good soil and good soil grows good food, which creates good health in human beings. And then when we add on to the plant medicine, like when I start growing all these plant medicines and getting plant medicines out that I grow out to my community through my clinic, the hands that touch the earth here end up touching like thousands of people. And so I feel really grateful for that opportunity. Mm. I hadn't put that together. So the plant medicines that you are farming are going to end up going through the clinic to all of your, your patients. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And, I, and I've been doing that for years, just doing it on a slightly larger scale now. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the tea, the tea company? Yeah, I actually have two tea companies. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about those. One is called Performance Tea. And the founder, Paolo Stupa, came to me and said, Marco, I heard from someone that you're a fantastic herbalist. And I wanted to hire an herbalist to help me formulate a tea that would help me perform better. And I do these uh, seal races where like they put like rucksacks full of rocks or metal plates and then run 50 miles or they do these crazy endurance feats. And he's like, I want something that can make me go faster, stronger. And I was like, well, spring vitamins on some herbs, they're going to be water soluble. You're going to pee them out in probably the first 20 minutes. Hmm. But really what you need is a class of herb called adaptogens. And these are a class of herbs that help you adapt to the stress load in your life. So I put a formula together and I said, like, you can just pay me as a patient would and I'll put some herbs in and you can see if you like them. And he ended up like running his best race ever and then gave it to his training mates and they ran their best race ever. And then it just sort of snowballed from there. And he's like, I want to make this into a company. And he brought me on as a co-founder and as a partner in the company. And we make herbs for, you know, our main market is the endurance athletes. So like the guy who won second in the bad water 100, which they, you know, run 135 miles through like the desert in the summer, which sounds insane to me. Which is incredible. Yeah. And he went from being in the like back of the pack to the front of the pack after taking our formulas. And he became like one of our spokesmen. And then our CEO, uh, a guy named Joe Gagnon tried our product and ran six 
while he was doing this project to run six marathons on six continents in six days. And he took our formula and afterwards said, hey, I want to invest money and I'm willing to be your interim CEO until you can pay me. And it's three years later, we still, you know, the money's all still gone back into the company, but he is the best CEO we could ever, ever hope for. And really, almost everyone needs adaptogens. There's just such an ambient level of both physical, psycho-emotional, and mental stress in people's beings. And we're being asked to adapt to circumstances that are changing more rapidly than our forefathers ever experienced. So we have a really like uh, nice growth rate for this company as people become more aware of using this type of plant medicines, adaptogens. And I really think adaptogens are probably going to be the plant medicine for North America and the Europe in a way and Asia. Like we need to adapt in a way that's more beautiful than say using caffeine and sugar because using caffeine and sugar basically borrow from your jing from tomorrow to pay for today. Uh, yes. You know, Death. whereas if you use adaptogens, Death. you build your chi so you don't get into the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal debt that you have to pay off later. So there's a huge advantage to especially like people who really push it like these endurance athletes, but there's a super advantage to someone who's working 60 hours a week in a startup or a mom who has two kids who is, you know, raising them by herself or her husband's off at work or a husband who's raising two kids while his wife's out of work. You know, the amount of things that we have to adapt to on a daily basis are just getting bigger and bigger. And we need this particular type of plant medicine. We pivoted the company recently to create a immunity adaptogen formula that's based on the Chinese formula Yuping Feng San. And Yuping Feng San is known as the Jade Windscreen. And it protects you from uh, airborne illnesses. And we combine that with elderberry, which is a tr traditional European plant that does the same and added a decent sized dosage of vitamin C and uh, also plant-based bioflavonoids uh, through black currants. So this is sort of our first responder formula for people who are going back to work and worried about catching viruses. And uh, that's all on the performancetea.com website and you can pick those up there. And I love those products. You know, I love collecting herbs from my own garden, but I take a strong dose of adaptogens every day. The combination of things like reishi and Siberian ginseng, these kind of things just power me to work stronger and not be tired at the end of the day. Very cool. And what about the second tea company? The second tea company is called Freya Health. I've been noticing that more and more young women basically have menstrual disharmonies. Basically, they're on young women, say in the 30-year-old age bracket, the primary thing when their health gets out of order that goes first is usually their reproductive system. And, you know, say a woman starts at age 15 on birth control and decides to get off birth control at 35 because she met the man of her life and wants to have a baby, her cycle has been dysregulated chemically for 20 years and usually is not in any shape to have a baby. And I see it over and over again that like the amount of pain and suffering these women go through trying to get pregnant again and they come to my clinic and usually it takes a couple of years and we've had really great success. And I find that, you know, for most of these women, they're on the exact same herbal formulas. And so it's a three-part herbal formula. It's a little complex, but there's a formula that you take right during your menstrual cycle while you're bleeding. There's a cycle formula you take in the middle 
what we call the daily, and then a luteal phase of formula that you take the week before your cycle. And these basically help cycle your hormones in their natural intended cycle, even if you are on birth control. And huh. we find that women have easier cycles, have better skin, have better hair, and it creates a whole bunch of like added health benefits just because you're using herbs to support the natural cycles. So in a way, I'm using that pattern recognition from Chinese medicine and applying it to a very like specific subsect of, say, women in their 30s who are concerned about their fertility and whose cycles might be dysregulated. And even women whose cycles seem perfectly normal and have an easy cycle a lot and are on birth control or not on birth control, a lot of times there's chemical impacts from our environment. Plastics in particular have a lot of like estrogen mimicking compounds in them. So a lot of times they're, even though their cycle on the outside looks fine, on the inside, there's a fair amount of dysregulation. And so you see a lot of young women with ovarian fibroids, uterine cysts, uh, endometriosis. And I wouldn't say the Freyer formulas are meant to correct that so much as they're meant to prevent it and move things in the right direction. Yeah, beautiful. And the, what's the website for the Freya? Is that freyat.com? Uh, Freya Health. Freya Health. F-R-E-Y-A health.com. Great, Marco. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's, I really enjoyed this conversation. I feel smarter than an hour right. ago. How can people find you and get plugged in? Well, there are two main places to find me. When I'm in Boulder, I'm in Boulder every other week seeing patients. And uh, bouldermandala.com is the name of our website for our clinic. And when I'm up in Steamboat at the farm, it's uh, elkstonefarm.com. And uh, I'm a pretty easy guy to find, and I'm generally fairly responsive, at least within a couple of days. Great. Anything else before we, we end? Any closing words or, or anything you want to touch on? No, thank you for giving me a soapbox. And uh, I love speaking of Chinese medicine and permaculture. I feel like we only scratched the surface, but it was a super uh, rich and enjoyable conversation. And I'm grateful for you holding the space for your friends and your community to hear this. I hope it serves them in a good way. Hey guys, it's Will again. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Evolving Earth Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Just a couple reminders before we leave. The first one is remember this episode is brought to you by Get Funded, my signature program to help entrepreneurs raise the money they need to build the companies that will change the world. You can check that out at www.foundersgetfunded.com. And I look forward to seeing you there. Lots of free resources over there. And then lastly, the humble request to please leave a review and a rating for this podcast in the podcast distributor where you found it or where you consumed it. Those reviews and ratings really help more people find our community and get involved in these types of conversations. So much love to you for that. Appreciate you. And we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.